0: Alright, so we are um, in the book, uh, well we're doing a marriage series, a marriage story. Uh, going through different stories, a marriage story in the Bible. We're going to be in the book of Genesis again. We're going to be in chapter 12 of Genesis. And verses 10 through 28. I'm going to read this Section. It's not going to be on the screen, so you're going to have to have a real Bible, uh, either through your cell phone or uh, through an actual printed Bible. i want to read Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance, And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male, donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camel. Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So, they, so that I took her from my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, just come to you this morning, Lord, asking, Lord, that you would encourage us through your word. What I pray for me is that, uh, that you would speak through me, Lord, that you would encourage your people, that you would challenge your people, that you would teach your people, Lord. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us because of flu symptoms that are just around everywhere. Lord, if they feel like it's plagued and affected everyone here in Evansville, Lord, I pray for them. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to them, Lord. I pray that you would restore them, Lord, physically. So they can go back to work. So they can be with friends and family. So they can be with us next Sunday. Lord, we pray for those who are going through difficulties in life, Lord, struggles in life, struggles in marriage, struggles with their work struggles and relationships, Lord struggles financially, Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, that You would encourage them, Lord. That they would trust in You through this difficult time. They would trust in Your promises. They would trust in Your provision. That they would not fear the unknown, but trust in You, Lord, who is sovereign and Lord over everything. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Central, uh, the Central African Republic, Lord. We pray for this nation, Lord. We pray for a nation that has gone through so much wars. And so much civil war, Lord, coups and and military struggles that affected people and economically, Lord. People are starving, people have, don't have uh, education, they don't have access to clean water. For believers in that country, Lord, who are struggling when it comes to believing in the, in, the, in the scriptures and knowing scripture, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would send missionaries into this country, Lord, that you would send your church... Into that country, Lord, to raise up leaders. We praise you that a seminary is in the in the capital city. May pastors and missionaries be trained there. May you send them, Lord, to bring the gospel to those who do not have it. But I pray, Lord, that you would continue to use Redeemer as a church that is always uh, that you provide resources for us to be givers and to help those in need and help our brothers and sisters in need around the world, so that the gospel will go to those who do not have it. But we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. amen. This is the second part in the, our marriage series, and we're going to be talking about Abraham and Sarah, and the title of the sermon is "Build a Heaven in Hell's Despair. Builds a Heaven in Hell's Despair. Kind of the big idea, kind of this, kind of a big idea just to kind of um, help us through this, this sermon, this, this, this sermon. The Spirit is the power for your marriage to build a heaven in Hell's Despair. The Spirit is the power for your marriage to build a heaven and hell's despair. <clears throat> and kind of the theme, last week we talked about the meaning of marriage, right? And what kind of look through Adam and Eve's marriage in, in Genesis 2 and through Genesis 4 and focus on different things about their marriage before the fall, the effects of the fall on their marriage, and also what led years later with losing two children and then leaving kind of their story with a little bit of hope, right, with that, with when Seth is born and, and their grandchild Enoch is born and they call him up on the name of the Lord. There's a sense there's a of hope that Adam and Eve is left with at the end of their story. And today we want to talk about the power of marriage in a fallen world. That because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, that the world has been plagued by the fall. The world has been plagued by the corruption of the fall. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the, the creation groans because of the fall. And that affects marriage. And because of marriage, we live in a fallen world, difficult times will happen, right? Challenges will happen for a couple. And, and it, it, can, it can vary in different things. You could have financial struggles, you could have so one of the spouses being fired from a job. You can have children that um, who go away from the Lord in that heartache. Or you can have children that, that pass away. You can have a, a spouse that passes away. There's so many different ways of, of struggles and difficulties that living in a fallen world, marriages have to live through and have to weather. And Adam And, the, and, and Abraham and Sarah had several different of these challenging issues that they had to face. And for most of them, they didn't face them well. And we're going to learn from their mistakes. Before I do that, I want to to, uh, quote and and read a poem. It's not very long. But it's a poem by William Blake and his Songs of Experience. And the poem is called The Clawed and the Pebble. The Clawed and the Pebble. Basically, this poem is about two different romantic stories. One positive, one negative. It starts like this. This is William Blake. Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease, and builds a heaven and hell's despair. So sung a little clod of clay, trodden with the cattle's feet, but a pebble of the brook warmed out these meters' meat. Love, love seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight, joys in another's loss of ease, and builds a hell and heaven's despite. To so get these two romantic stories, and we really want to focus on these, these, kind of these, these two stories that William Blake brings out here, is that love does not seek its own gain. Love seeks the gain of the other. Um, And so really what I want to do here is I want to contrast uh, Abraham and Sarah's marriage with the example and model that we get in Ephesians chapter 5 by Paul. So the point number one is the wandering coward. The wandering coward. We're going to look at Genesis 12, 10 through 20. So kind of backing up to the story, right? Uh, uh, Abraham or Abram took his wife, Sarah, who then becomes Sarah, his wife, to Cana. They lived with Abram's father, Terah, and Haran, and they left there to go to the land of Cana. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. God says this to Abram. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing to others. Verse 7 of chapter 12, to your offspring I will give this land. God calls Abram to leave his hometown, the place he knows, to an unknown land, to a strange country. to A place he has no connections to, no family, no friends, nothing. And God sends him to this land. And he has no children up to this point, and God promises him that he will be the father of a great nation, which therefore implies that he will then have children. He can't have children if he you, you can't have a nation from you if you don't have any children. So he will make his name great. He will have offspring. God promises that he will cause Abram and his family to prosper. Now, it says in chapter 11, verse 30, it's an important piece of detail in this story. Now, Sarai, his wife, was barren. She had no children. So up to this point in their marriage, they had no children. We learn that Abram was 75 years old when he left his hometown. So they were quite old. We don't know how long they have been married up to this point, but we can guess it was more than one, two, five years. they probably been married for maybe 10 or 20 years, and they had no children. Sari, which means princess, was barren. While Moses doesn't make any direct comments to this detail about Sari, but we are to read this as a direct consequence of the horrible event in the garden with Adam and Eve. Disobeying God's command to not eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. One of the call, curses of the fall in the garden is women struggling in childbirth and the possibility of an inability to have children. But God promises Abram that he will have offspring. Right? He says this to him He says, You will have children from you. You and your wife will have children. Even up to this point, though know, they're old in their age, they have yet to have any children. Later on, God, in His grace on Sarah, he changes her name to Sarah, which means mother of nations. Right, That she will be the queen of all Israel. Even the prophet Isaiah mentions this in 51, too, about Sarah and her being the mother of Israel. The one who was barren into her old age is actually considered the queen of Israel queen of a nation. So Abram and Sarah's children will inherit the land that they are strangers in. This promise is God's great love for this struggling family. Like, right? I mean, to be in that world, in an ancient world where children were such an important part of your wealth, they had no children of their own. They, they, you, you can almost like put yourself in their household. This was a constant struggle. Sarah always being constantly reminded of the lack of, um, unable to bear children. No children to call their own. They moved to this strange, unknown land with none of their family with them, completely unconnected, with no children of their own. That's a a struggle that they had to go through, moving to a new place, but also having no children and struggling through that parting. And we learn in chapter 12, verse 10, there was a famine in the land. So the land that they just moved to has this severe famine. And it was so severe, they were forced to migrate from their new home to Egypt. They were forced to go into Egypt. It's not like they decided to go to Egypt on a vacation. It's not like they decided to go to Egypt because they were unhappy with where they were living and they wanted to go somewhere new. They moved to Egypt because of the famine. It was so severe, they had to leave. And Egypt was home of the Nile River, which provided a more stable agricultural environment than the land of Cana, which just had the Jordan River, and and and, and more uh, in need of rainfall. So they sojourned in Egypt. And what a sojourn is, is to live in a place for a long time. They lived in Egypt for a while. Again, this wasn't a weekend excursion. This wasn't some overnight trip. This is a place they were going to, and they were escaping from the famine to go into Egypt and to live there for an undetermined amount of time. And again, being sojourned in a land is to have no family affiliation to where you're going, no citizenship rights whatsoever. Again, this was not a quick weekend, we actually learned from other sojourners in Ruth chapter 1, 1 through 4, when Naomi and her husband and her sons went to Moab because of a famine, they lived there for 10 years. They moved to Moab because of a famine. They moved moved from their land in in Israel to live amongst the Moabites because of a famine. They lived there actually for 10 years before they ended up going back. The Syrian refugees who are sojourning in Europe during the Civil War today they would prefer to live in their actual countries, but are forced to leave their home to do these because of the severity of the war. So they left or leaving with no idea when they'll be able to go back home. People are sojourning all over Europe today because of wars in the Middle East. With they, they would prefer to live in their home, right? They would prefer to live in their home country, but they have been forced to leave their countries to go into other countries where they have no family connections, no citizenship rights to sojourn there. And this is very. This is what happens with Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai. So Abram and his crew have left Cana and are sojourning in Egypt for an undetermined amount of time. The famine that struck Egypt during this time of Joseph lasted seven years. I mean, there was another famine that happened. So again, we don't know how long they lived there. We learn in verse sixteen and chapter sixteen and thirteen, verse two, that Abram became quite wealthy. So they are most likely in Egypt for a few years for him to build this wealth that he ended up having. To summarize all of this, they are living in Egypt to escape a famine. They have no connections in Egypt. No uncle or aunt or cousins who live in town. No citizenship rights. They are unprotected. They are vulnerable to abuse by by anyone. They are vulnerable to all kinds of different abuses because, again, they have no safety nets in Egypt. Verse 11 and 12 I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. this is Abram talking to his wife. and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, "This is his wife. Then they will kill him and they will let you live. So I guess so even though Sarah was 65 years old at this point in her life, she was extremely beautiful that it would draw attention of powerful men in Egypt. It's not like this would draw attention to some common man, but the most powerful people in the nation of Egypt will will notice her and want to kill Abram to take her as their wife. She was beautiful in a physical appearance, and her form and her appearance was quite beautiful. This is what was said about uh, Rachel in chapter 29, verse 17, that she was beautiful in form and in appearance. So we can therefore imply that Sarah was beautiful in form and appearance. That people would attribute her with beauty. This was an idea like, well, they saw her heart and she had a great personality, right? Or she was a good, she had a, of, she had a lot of character. No, no, she was extremely beautiful. Very similar language was used when David saw Bathsheba on the roof when she was bathing. He said that she was very beautiful. And so Abram is saying is that since we are in this land that we do not belong, we we are sojourning in this land, they will kill me and steal you for themselves. What? This is so, I didn't even think about this until this week. But that's exactly what King David did with Bathsheba, right? What did he do? He saw her on the roof bathing. He said, she's very beautiful. I want her. He's the king, right? So who's going to stop him? He sends his dudes over. They take her, bring him, bring her to his room. And what does he do? He has sex with her. And then what ends up happening? He kills Uriah. Basically what Abram is saying will happen to him actually happened with King David. He literally was a powerful man, took another man's wife, and then had him killed. He stole her for himself and had Uriah killed. So Abram's fear is well-founded. If Abram had not received a direct promise from God that he would be the father of many nations, that he would have an offspring that would inherit the land of Cana, then his fear would be founded. But God promised that he would be the father of many nations. So therefore, why does Abram have to fear anything? (coughs) Abram should have had more faith in God at this point he the fears for his life, and his fear leads to doubt about God's promise during this difficult, challenging time of their marriage. The Egyptians couldn't kill him. Why? Because God had already promised Abram that he would have offsprings. So it would make no sense God being Lord and sovereign over everything if he allowed Abram to die here in Egypt. He was destined to become a great nation, yet his fear led him to self-centeredness. He lack his lack of care for his wife is clearly put on display. Abram is a coward. He cares about his own neck, not the security of, of his wife Siri. Because you have to think what's happening here by telling her, the telling uh, the people that that's her, that's his sister. That then she is more likely to what what happened. She was taken, and she was taken to the king's home. To so actually, she becomes a whatever. She either becomes his wife or his concubine, his mistress, his slave. And it doesn't seem like Abram cares very little about what happens to his wife, only about his own self-centeredness, his own, ish, his own needs. He says, say, you up to hear my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. Abram is empty of all logic, because again, if you trace the statements of God in the previous verses of chapter 12, Abram has no reason to convince his wife to act like his sister. It doesn't seem that Abram thought this out with his wife, more like at the last minute, he drops this cockamamie plan on her head. Hey, 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 they'll kill me if they know that um, you're my wife, so why don't you just act like my sister? She's pushed out in front, so cowardly, like a cowardly lion can hide behind her. He, like Aba, Adam, failed to lead his wife to faithfulness, but leads her to God's promise as well. He's such a coward. When God told him that he would make a great nation through, through them, yet he shows no trust in God's promise here. And Sari is left out to dry. No, no protection as his wife. What happens? The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Similar to Bathsheba and Esther, other, two other women in, in the Old Testament who were taken by powerful men. Sari is taken to most likely, potentially, uh, potentially becomes the Pharaoh's mistress or concubine or wife or worse. We have no idea. The Egyptians do not know God. And, and, and as we will see down the road, these are the same people that make the Hebrews slaves and defy God... It's clear from the story that Abram does nothing to stop it. If you read the story, there's nothing in here that says or or highlights or indicates that Abram did anything to stop Pharaoh's men taking his wife. He allowed another man to take his wife into his house with the plan to make her a member of his harbor, or his house. Abram profits from the the situation at the expense of his wife. Like what, is it, what does it say at the end here in this section? It says, for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. and talking about Pharaoh. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. What did he do? He acted like a pimp, and his wife was the prostitute. Basically, right? He profited from his wife. If any husband ever did that, what would be our reaction? They basically, they get this right. This is is, is not speculating. This is what's happening. The Pharaoh gives Abram a bridal gift. Thinking that that was his sister. And and, and so he gives Abram a bridal gift for his actual wife. You don't get any more self-centered than that. And what's so crazy... Is Abram does the same thing year la- years later in chapter 20, verse, in chapter 20 with Amalek. He does the same thing. It even says in chapter 20, verse 13, that Abram said, When God called me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, He is my brother. Because God took us out of my father's house. Therefore, since we have no protection from my father, why don't you just treat me like your brother so that I won't be killed? And then he's kind of, it's God's fault that he has to do this. Since God calls me to wonder, as if God somehow was powerless to protect him unless he devised this plan that puts his wife in harm's way. He rationalizes his action and informs his wife that she must do this for him, putting her in a horrible position so that he could be safe, failing to protect her from abduction, and then profiting off the arrangement. So this, was, this, this, is, this is an example of self-centeredness in marriage. Caring only about your needs and putting the other partner and spouse in the situation at harm's way. When challenges arise, how should we address these issues in marriage? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not to be drunk on wine. So Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5, he gives us this idea that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. That what wisdom and, and wise living comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. We understand the will of the Lord when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled is this idea. And, I, and it's so interesting. It happened today at church, right? Some of the women had, I don't know if you had hairspray in your hair. Uh, there was a fragrance, right? And the fragrance kind of filled the whole basement. It, it was a pleasant smell. It wasn't a bad but when, when, when something is filled, a fragrance is a great example of this, is that house was filled with a fragrance of an anointment, that when something is, smells good, it will fill a room, right? And that, that smell basically is stamped, and, and it almost controls the room. I, I remember right? I really enjoy holidays. When you get the Yankee candles and they are either like the fall or the Christmas or something like that, and I didn't like the smell that it fills the room with. Right? As if the room um, basically that smell kind of controls the room. It has a stamp on it. That controlled and stamp of the powers which fill it. And when the Holy Spirit fills us the Spirit controls and stamp of the powers which fill us when we have the Spirit in us. To be filled with the Spirit of God is God's Personal presence, his influence, and his enablement to walk wisely. So when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, God's presence, influence, and we are enabled to live a life that's wise, or to live a life that's based on his will. will. And what does Paul say here in Ephesians 5, after verse 18? He says, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then address each other. Addressing each other in praises of God and the joys of believers. Giving thanks always and for everything. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. That we are filled with the Holy Spirit in our actual communication with each other. Our communication is saturated with the praises of God. what a psalm is. The hymns of God are joys that we have because of God. It leads to thankfulness. It leads to, it leads to humility and love. Great pride and individualism and independence and self-centered living is the opposite of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit causes a mutual submission towards, towards each other. When a husband loves his wife, he loves his wife by sacrificing himself for her, for her ultimate good. The goal of the husband's love is her ultimate good. Loving her in the same way that you are concerned about yourself Paul says that it, that are that we because we nourish and cherish our own bodies, we care and cherish our wife. Therefore, a husband should take tender care of his wife. Abram failed to take t- tender care of his wife. Paul says here at the end of this section, you shall become one flesh, abandoning self-centeredness and being welded together, welded together, be welded together with your spouse. The failures of Abram, he failed to trust God's promises. The Spirit generates thoughts about God which saturate our communication with our husband or wife. When we recognize that God's promises, we recognize (laughs) God's love for us and His mercy on us and His Word, we trust His Word that will come out in our communication during difficult times. We'll have thankful hearts to God in difficult times. We'll have reverence for God in difficult times, because Abram did not trust in the promises of God in this challenging time, he didn't have fear for God. Abram was full of self-centeredness. He failed to love Sarah sacrificially, rather put his needs above hers and failed to take care of her. He acted in his own interest while allowing his wife to suffer. And instead of dying for her, he put her on the cross to die for himself so he could profit off her out of fear and the challenge out of fear in the challenge for himself he failed to love his wife and during times of challenging times of difficulty to be wise and faithful to God's will and loving and full of grace your marriage must be spirit filled you can't survive in difficult times in your marriage you cannot love your wife the way you should love her if you are not spirit filled how are you, Spirit? Well, you have to pray for God to, His Spirit would fill you. Yes, if you're a Christian, you, are, you do have the Holy Spirit, but during times of life, to be able to rap, react to certain issues in life well, and to do it godly, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have to pray for that. We have to prepare our hearts for difficult times. The Holy Spirit would control our marriage so that in times of difficulty, we will reflect the wisdom and love of Christ. If we truly want to glorify God and reflect His wisdom and His love, then we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. We have to. Or we will act just like Abram and be self-centered. The second point is the barren, control freak and her lazy husband. The barren control freak and her lazy husband. Uh, Genesis chapter 16. This is the story of Hagar. Starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had, had borne him no children. We know that. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and may it be that I shall take children by her." And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. And I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt." May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So the story's kind of, we got to fast forward here. About 10 years later, Sarah's about 75 years old. <coughs> 10 years since the promise that God had made to Abram in uh, chapter 12. So they've, been, they've gone 10 years. God promised him that they would have a child. It's been 10 years and there Sarah's still married. No children. Now he's been pregnant. And prior to this episode in chapter 15 of Genesis, God had established a covenant with Abram. Right? So Abram goes, how do I know this is going to happen? Like, it's, it's been a few years. You promised me this child. It's so yet to happen. What do what. A, What can you show me to prove that I will possess what you promise? And what does the Lord do? He actually makes a covenant with Abram. He walks between the dead animals. Abram was was told to split the animals, and and, and God walked in between them, basically symbolizing that he will fulfill his promise. That if if God somehow did not fulfill his promise, that God would be destroyed like these animals So God is staking his credentials, his character, on fulfilling his his promise to Abram in Syria. Behold, the Lord has prevented me. So Syria is is ten years later, and she still doesn't have children, and she's mad. She's mad. God had promised us that we were going to have children, and I'm still not pregnant. I'm 75 years old, and I'm never going to have children. So what does she do? She even says, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Hagar is a servant from Egypt, which makes sense, it makes sense that she was one of the Pharaoh's gift to Abram in chapter 12. She offers as a surrogate mother. So Hagar is going to be a surrogate mother for Sarah Eve. Hagar is under Sari's authority, right? Uh, uh, Hagar's mistress, uh, her her authority is in Sari. Sari has authority over her. We even see that in verse 6, right? Abram said, you tell her, you have authority over her, you tell her what you want to do with her, and she sends her away. But Sari has begun to doubt God's fulfillment. She becomes impatient. She becomes resentful. What does she say? The Lord has kept me from being a mother, from having a family of my own. Basically, It was very common in that time in the ancient, ancient world for a husband who, whose wife would not produce children for her, but her and him go marry someone else. Maybe divorce her, or just add another wife and have children with her. So she starts to doubt God's goodness and his plan. Sarah takes action to secure her own plan and assists a weak God, in her mind, to produce an heir for her and her husband. She doesn't think God is up to the task, right? Or she would not come up with this plan. She would trust God, but she doesn't think he's up to it. She doesn't think He will. he's good enough, that he's not a good God. He's a weak God. Or why why hasn't he not given us what he's promised? says, go into my servant that I may obtain children by her. She gave Hagar to Abram, her husband, as a wife. That's crazy, right? I mean, this story is nuts. Like, <laughs> she forces Hagar to marry her husband. Sarah's own self-centeredness is put on display. Later we see Hagar conceives a child. Sarah's, Sarah's plan is successful. However, she resents Hagar and Abram for the child. She says, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your grace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. Sarah was not delighted in the result of her plan, was she? She had resentment. It was her plan. She's the one who thought this out. Her own self-centeredness thought this out. And then she was unhappy with the results. Sari believes Hagar's new status in the household, uh, due to Hagar's pregnancy and Sarah's barrenness, that she would have a better status now. Equality with Sari or more important than Sari, because she was able to bear children. Hagar is now a threat to Sari's place in the family. Then Sari dealt, dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The result of her self-centeredness was resentment and cold-hearted treatment towards Hagar. This is her doing. She's the one that gave Hagar to Abram, and then she was unhappy with it, and then she harshly treats Hagar and gives coldness to her and then kicks her out of the house. By failing to trust God in her barrenness, she resorts to self-centeredness, which led to resentment towards those she brought into her own wicked scheme. And what happens? it brought trouble into the marriage. Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress. She began to despise her mistress. We learn later on in chapter 29, verse nine, that she saw the same thing in Ishmael, the son of Hagar, because she was laughing, or that he was dishonoring Isaac, who was just born. Future pains in our marriage when we react to challenges with self-centeredness, when we react to things in our marriage, difficulties with self-centeredness, it will lead to future pain. Was that true? It was true with Abram and Siri. It will be true with our marriages as well. Let me go to Abram, because Abram is, is, is not without fault in this story. Right? All the blame does not go to Siri. In verse... It says here that Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Would remind, that remind you of any other story? It's the same thing that God said about Adam. He listened to the voice of his wife. Sarah is under his leadership as a husband, so ultimately the blame falls to Abram. The buck stops with him. However, Abram turns the whole matter to Sari and appeases her at the expense of Hagar, which results in Sarah's resentment and cold-hearted treatment of Hagar Abram failed to protect her from the pain that would, that would follow by sleeping with another woman without any argument or sense of loyalty to his wife. Sarah so basically gives him a hall pass, and he goes along for the ride without any care in the world. Blazingly listening to the voice of his wife and proceeding as instructed, Just doing the bidding of his wife. If Paul goes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the leader of the marriage. The wife is the husband's equal partner who is the suitable helper. As the husband loves his wife sacrificially, like Christ loved his church, his bride, by giving his life for her, the wife is called to help him in their mission to glorify Christ with their lives. To live a life worthy of the gospel. Wives, our future wives, you can only help your husband the way God wants by being filled with the Spirit. You can't help him well if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Sari failed to help her husband. Instead, she led her husband. When we are not filled with the Spirit, we're filled with something else. And for Sari, she was filled with self-centeredness. Self-centeredness does not lead to oneness in our marriage. It does not lead to joy in marriage, only sorrow and pain and disappointment. The husband shows self-centeredness with the wife. When we are filled with the Spirit in our marriages, our lives are getting over to service to one another. We love the other more than ourselves. The Spirit gives us joy. If you lose your life, you will save it. Living for ourselves is a path to destruction in your marriage, so therefore just purge it now. Purge it. It will not lead to joy. It will not lead to happiness. It will not lead to contentment. It will lead to destruction. When we, have, when we remember in Christ, your needs are going to be met. When we, when we remember Christ, when we focus on Christ, we will recognize that our needs are going to be met and are in fact being met. That we do not have to control, we do not have to think of some scheme or plan to to obtain what we want, but that God will provide it. The best marriage advice I can give you is to be immersed more in the promises, counsels, and encouragements of Christ. Know His mind and His heart, and you will be a faithful husband or faithful wife. Know God, know His Word, know Christ and His encouragement and His teachings in your life, and you will be... Spirit-filled husband and wife. When Abram and Sarai failed in their marriage, was it, it was a distrust in God's faithfulness to His promises in the midst of the challenges? Because they doubted God's promises, because they they were not faithful to God's promises. When they were distrusted God's promises and His faithfulness, they sinned in their challenges, in their difficult times. So, some applications for you. Your self-centeredness is the main problem in your marriage or future marriage. Your self-centeredness. Not the self-centeredness of your spouse, but your own self-centeredness. Sin will generate self-centeredness. Spirit will generate selflessness. If you are in sin and you are by nature sinful, and if you're not in constant prayer and devotion to Christ, sin will generate self-centeredness, and that is in all of us. To acknowledge your own self centeredness, and that is the main problem in your marriage or your future marriage. That you should show more love for your partner, more dependent on God's grace through His Spirit. Number two is trust in Christ's promises through all challenges. Trust in Christ's promises through all challenges. Paul says in Romans 8 that all things happen for good for those who love God and call it upon His purpose, and that everything is leading to what? Conformity to Christ. The goal for your life is to be more like Christ. What did Christ do? What did Christ display? He displayed submission to the will of his Father. So women, wives, submission to your husbands is to be more Christ-like. And to be a good wife is to be more like Christ. Not to uh, be an expert, or, or to have a healthy family, or to have a, a wealthy family, or to have a big house, or whatever whatever it is. To be a good wife is to be more like Christ. To be a good husband is to reflect Christ and to be like Him in His image, which means what? Dying to your bride, like Christ did. You know, I want to conclude with this story. Um, this is in a book called Unbroken they made a movie not too long ago it's about the story of a uh, World War II um, um, airman who crashed in the Pacific Ocean in 1943 uh, Louis Zamperini an Italian American <coughs> and so when he, him and his plane crashed in the Pacific Ocean uh, for 47 days they were stranded at sea shark infested waters and all of them except two died from shark attacks, and one of those was Louis Debrini, and they were, they, him and, his, and his, his companion were captured and endured two and a half years of imprisonment, constant beating, humiliation and torture. He was he able to survive that, returned to, back to the United States after the war, he suffered from uh, severe post-traumatic stress disorder, he became an alcoholic, and he was married. His wife uh, uh, Cynthia, she lost hope for her marriage. Her husband was a wreck. I mean, like he was an alcoholic. He was having dreams about the war. He uh, he would have this con. He had a dream of revenge. There was a certain uh, uh, um, Japanese soldier, a Japanese officer called the Bird, and he was in charge of the prison that he was at. And he was the one that inflicted all the pain that he suffered. And he would have dreams of strangling the bird. And at one point, he was sleeping next to his wife, he had one of these dreams, and she started screaming in the night because he was choking her, thinking he was choking this Japanese officer. She had lost all hope for her marriage. Her husband was an alcoholic, her husband couldn't keep a job. She was going to file for a divorce. And then in 1949, she went to a Billy Graham crusade, heard the gospel preached, confessed her sin, believed in Christ, was converted to Christianity. Forgive a believer. She then brought her husband, the alcoholic, the survivor from the war, takes him to one of Billy Graham's Churches, and he also receives Christ Jesus into his life. This is in that book, Unbroken. He then returns to Jap- Japan and shares the gospel with the uh, Japanese officers that inflicted pain and torture on him, which shows us. That difficult times are going to happen in any marriage. Now, I'm not saying your your one of your, your spouses is going to have house traumatic stress disorder, become an alcoholic or a drug addict or any type of things, but that might happen. And the only advice in this in this in, in, in a world where a, in a fallen world where difficulty and challenges will come into every marriage. Romans five. Be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the sin may no longer plague your marriage with disorder, self-doubt, or spouse worship. When we can be free to serve our Lord, our spouse, with joy, nothing can fill the God-sized spiritual vacuum in your heart. Your career, your children, your marriage, as well, cannot fill a God-sized hole. Until God has the proper place in your life, you will always respond to challenges in your marriage with self-generated, self-centeredness, not spirit-generated humility. Sin-generated self-centeredness leads to complaining about your spouse's love for you is not enough, respect of you is not enough, and the support of you is not enough. We have to have the Holy Spirit if marriages are going to work in a fallen world. I'm go back to the poem that I read earlier. Love seeks no, not itself to please, nor for itself has any care, but for another gives its ease, and builds a heaven and hell to spare. To build a Build a heaven in hell's despair is the look that seeketh the other to please not yourself. Care little for yourself but for the other, and build a heaven in hell's despair. Your marriage will be a heaven in hell's despair. None of this is possible without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Which therefore you need the gospel for marriage to work. You have to understand the sin in your life, you have to understand the, the, the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. For your sins. You have to trust in Christ, be filled with His Holy Spirit, and be dependent on that Spirit daily for you to be able to face challenging times in marriage. The Spirit of God is the power for your marriage. It's the power for your marriage. If you're going through marital struggle, you've gone through marital struggle, be encouraged by this. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Don't do what Abram and Sarai did and, and, and try to trust themselves or try to, to, try to think outside the box to, to gain what they lack. To trust in God and be filled with His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much, Lord, for your, your word. I thank you, Lord, for, for marriage. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for some of the stories in the, in the Bible that show us not what not to do sometimes, Lord. We're prone, Lord, to self-centeredness. Lord, we're prone to uh, want to make ourselves happy and to obtain our own happiness by our own means and not to rely on the means that you offer. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit daily, that we would rely on your Spirit daily, Lord, that it would fill us, Lord, with joy, that it would help us, Lord, in our communication with our spouse. That our communication, Lord, would be praises to you. That it would, we would be reminded, Lord, of your promises. That we would be reminded, Lord, of your provision. we would be reminded of the joy that we have in Christ. That we would be full of thankfulness, Lord. And that we would submit towards one another in reverence to you. Lord, we lack your spirit so often, Lord. But, Lord, that you would give it where we lack. You would provide for us, Lord. That you would give us humble hearts, that we would serve our spouse, that we would love our spouse, Lord, and through that you would give us joy. Lord, we thank you, Lord, we praise you, Lord. If there's anyone here that has, they're struggling in their marriage, Lord, or or just struggling, Lord, in their own personal life, Lord, that you would help them, Lord, to see their need for your Spirit, Lord, and that you would fill them. And you would lead them to love and service of others. And that would give them joy. For we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. If I can get um and uh, Adam wants you come up here. Um, the way that we do this here is um, that this is for believers. And so if you're a believer, please.